This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, let's get this over with. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gep and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! I'm so tired. It's almost yep. over. <laughs> so we're on the last episode of Star Trek, the original series. Yes, the last, the last episode, which is not a series finale, because they, nope. they didn't do that yet. Yeah, that wasn't really a thing. Uh, it's like, well, I guess we're just going to stop making episodes now. So, you know, whatever. Yeah, I was reading a description of this that was like, because of the sudden cancellation and of the lack of series finales popularity in the 60s, this is much more like a normal episode. So it's like, oh yeah, we're going to tune in next week, and oh, there's into next week? Huh. Well, that's kind of a weird downer ending. Yeah, so this ends with Turnabout Intruder. Yes. Who's the intruder and who are we turning about? Yeah, that's the question. No <laughs> one knows. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's pretty widely known as one of the worst episodes. I've seen several references to it being ranked sort of consistently as like the third or fourth worst episode in all of Star Trek, just blanket, including everything, all of the series. I, I can see that. I, I've seen a lot of Star Trek recently. Yeah, me too. Weird coincidence, that. Da -da -da. <laughs> This episode was written by Arthur H. Singer, who we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet, but was very important for season three. Yes, he was the uh, consultant on a lot of uh, scripts, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, now, this particular story was based on a story by Gene Roddenberry, as a lot of things are, and Singer adapted it into the actual script, because Singer replaced DC Fontana at the end of season two. So this is the... Uh... The replacement guy. Yeah, she couldn't work with the show anymore. He came in. Everyone says he was actually competent, like not a horrible person to work with, fairly good at his job, hardworking, etc., etc., etc. Had no idea what Star Trek was and didn't want to find out. So I just make the story make sense and the stuff that I don't understand, I just, just leave in. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. And as far as I've been able to find this and then an episode of something called Then Came Branson seem to be the only things he's ever written. Uh, there is also The Evil Touch. The Evil Touch. Ugh. Yes. Mid-70s. Bad Touch. <laughs> uh, and something called Judd for the Defense. There is an episode apparently he was involved in. Oh, no. In. No, I don't like that at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff none of us have ever heard of before. Yeah. He was on uh, Miscellaneous Crew and other things, and he's even a producer for uh, something called Kane's Hundred and De Decoy. But I don't, I don't know how much he brought to this. Apparently, a lot of people blame him for why there was a, such a sudden decline in th the third season episodes. So that's an interesting one, because while I will say there's definitely been a sharp decline in season three, it also has some of the best episodes of the series overall. It's very, very hidden, man. Yeah, incredibly. But we'll get more into that later when we are doing more... Uh, general episode stuff this is about turnabout intruder which i think yes. the pertinent thing here is based on a story by gene roddenberry because this is probably like the most roddenberry story we've gotten pretty much yeah from everything that i've learned about the guy through the course of doing this the, the, the funny thing is in some of the stuff i was finding you know he actually regrets how sexist this episode ended up being <laughs> but still it's still very G. Roddenberry. If he regrets how sexist this episode is, that should tell you something about this episode. Yeah. Oh, dear. All right, we've only got two guest stars this episode. It's a pretty bodily episode. First guest star is Sandra Smith, who's playing Dr. Janice Lester. Yes. Who's uh, apparently has a, a name of significance about, you know, something about yourself and invasions or something like that. I don't know. Eh. I didn't look into the meta stuff on this. Uh, so Sandra Smith is in a bunch of things, uh, contemporary, of course, including Bonanza, The Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, Rockford Files, and, of course, Columbo. Also, the FBI. Yes. <laughs> like everyone else, apparently. And the interns, like everyone else. Yes. I'm coming to the conclusion that this is kind of like modern British television. There's like 10 actors. We just keep cycling through them, and it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
And also we have Harry Landers. Interesting name. Yeah, this was uh, actually one of his uh, later roles as far as uh, his uh, total filmography. He did a lot of uh, acting before this, you know, going back to like the 40s or something like that. Yeah, started in the 40s and was pretty well known. He is playing Dr. Arthur Coleman. There's another doctor on the show now. Doctor, doctor. Yeah, it was on roles like The Wild Ones. He played another doctor called Dr. Ted Hoffman on Ben Casey, which I don't really know much about. It was also in a lot of films. And he even had multiple roles in The Ten Commandments. Uh, he was also in something called Captain Video and his Video Rangers. Oh, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a couple of people, uh, Nargola's friend and Atil, apparently. <laughs> We've gotten so many people who were background characters in the Ten Commandments. It got me thinking about how much harder it must be to be a background actor nowadays when half the background stuff is CGI. Indeed. Instead of, you know, back in the 40s when they needed to actually get 2,000 people to film those shots. All right, uh, let's get our town of extras to come over here and uh, for this shot here. And there we go. Okay. And then you're on screen, you get your SAG card, and off you pop. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's, it's like automation striking again. Yep. But that's not what this episode's about. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, let's jump in. This one's going to have a lot to unpack. Yep. It's also very, very confusing. So I'm going to apologize straight off because I, I had trouble with the names. I'll explain when we get there, but I hope I did something that's easy enough to follow. The Enterprise is responding to a distressed call from the research team on Camus 2, where they are exploring an ancient alien civilization. What did they do to Camus 1? Oh, good question. There are apparently only two survivors of this expedition, the chief surgeon, Dr. Coleman, and the expedition leader, Dr. Janice Lester. She's kind of laid up at the moment. Um, hope, she, hope she's not dying. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to find Lester dying. Uh-oh. Possibly radiation poisoning. Coleman explains she was exposed to an unknown type of radiation, which is a problem because apparently you need to t treat different types of radiation very differently, and there's not a lot of overlap, and you know, the treatment could kill you. Indeed. Um, yeah, and sometimes in Star Trek, you just have to leave the area and you're fine. Other times you need a special chemical. Other times you need to be put through some sort of weird decontaminations process. Other times you need, like, you know, to just... You know, make your will uh, out and uh, hope for the best. Sometimes you just need to be startled. Yes. <laughs> Kirk speaks to Lester with familiarity. Apparently they know each other from mm. some time back there. Yes. Yeah, something about the Academy days, wasn't it? Uh, Janice doesn't speak yet and makes sort of distressed noises. Spock detects another survivor with very faint life signs, so he, McCoy, and Coleman go off to find them, leaving Kirk alone to keep Lester company and calm. She wakes up immediately upon them leaving, comments about how she hates him, hates their past relationship, hates herself, hates how women aren't allowed to be starship captain. Kirk goes, yep, it's not fair. What you gonna do about it? Well, uh, it would have been nice to, you know, maybe say that's not fair maybe let's do something about it <laughs> mm -hmm. also because this has never come up before or since women are not allowed to be starship captains whoops um, it gets a little bit glossed over but it's a very yeah. important plot point yeah it kind of drives a lot of the motivation for uh for, for the for laster here i don't know it's one of those two <laughs> So Kirk takes a bit of a look around the room because he's easily distracted, and he stands by a strange-looking wall with a lot of runes and stuff carved in it. Oh, cool. Uh, is, wait, is this, this is a Gaul planet, isn't it? It really does look like it, actually. <laughs> it looks like a Gaul planet, which is a Stargate reference. Yep. <laughs> I, I try to remember that maybe not everyone has the same encyclopedic I've watched every 90s sci-fi show as I have. Well, that's fine. This, is, this will encourage them to look things up. Check, check it out for themselves. Celeste <laughs> so immediately jumps out of bed, activates some sort of device that causes the wall to light up, and attaches Kirk to it, I guess? He gets stuck to the wall, like one of those big Velcro walls at the fair. Yeah, it's like a Kirk magnet. She then walks up, activates a little switch on the wall next to the wall. It's like on the wall, by the wall. So many walls. There's too many walls in this episode. <laughs> so let's tear down these walls. Mr. Gorbachev, wait. That's later. A little later. Okay. <laughs> she turns on the wall, stands in front of it. We get a distorted image of both of them flying out of their faces and switching places because this is the Freaky Friday wall. Da -da -da! Surprise! Also, I think this is the last ep uh, part of the uh, episode film, so 
that's the end of original series Star Trek. Yep, Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just from here, it's confusing. I'm going to use the body names, but the soul genders. Okay. Figure that's the only decent way to do this. Alternatively, we have to put like Bizarro in front of everyone's names. That just yeah, old, I know. So. so like, anytime I say Kirk, it's Lester, and anytime I say Lester, it's Kirk. They're just in those bodies, so it's the it's the only way it makes any kind of sense. I'll try not to get too confused. We got a, a brain switch here. Yeah. So Kirk moves Lester back to the bed, giving a speech about how he should have killed her when he had the chance, and now because she has the strength, she'll have no problem with killing him, like he didn't do to her, even though he had no intention of it. I don't know, but Kirk grabs a scarf and starts to strangle Lester, but is immediately interrupted by the rest of the party returning. Oh, uh, hi, guys. Uh, you're back early. Um, could you go away for 10 minutes, please? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> they were unable to save the other survivor. McCoy thinks it was something called seburum poisoning, some sort of radiation or something, but he's in a disagreement with Coleman, which happens a lot because you know they can't figure out what treatment it is because Coleman's being weird and evasive. I don't know. Maybe Coleman's not a very good doctor. Now with McCoy back, Kirk has run out of options for killing people, so she orders them to beam Lester back on board and have him moved into sickbay. Back on the ship, Kirk and Coleman are left alone in sickbay where they argue about killing Lester. Coleman criticizes Kirk for being unable to kill, I guess. Yeah, it's like, you're too weak to kill. And she goes, no, I'm not a killer. I can kill whenever I want. You're a killer. You let me kill everyone. Yeah, so uh, why don't you go kill, you know, Lester now for me? They're also worried that if Lester wakes up, he will remember what happened, and that's a problem. But maybe no one will believe him, so maybe it's not a problem. Well, um, we should probably, like, I don't know, just... Discuss several contingency plans, and uh, wait, we're not doing that? Nope. Okay. McCoy and Chapel enter, McCoy questioning what they're all doing there, because his tests show no sign of radiation damage, so Coleman's treatment is not advised, but Kirk orders that Coleman suddenly be the doctor in charge of all of Lester's care, and that McCoy should not come near Lester at all. Just stay away, McCoy, and uh, don't even hang out in the same room. You're, you're banned from sickbang. Bye. Coleman forces Chapel to sedate Lester. Uh, when he starts to wake up, despite McCoy's protests that this could be harmful, that Kirk, you know, makes them follow orders regardless, so... I don't know, Chapel, you should really be speaking up at this point and say, this seems like it's unethical. Yeah, I guess the military doctor thing might be different, but I'm pretty sure you're supposed to refuse to do things that are unethical to your patients. Indeed. Kirk returns to the bridge after confirming their current course in ETA. She orders that they set course for a nearby colony that she claims will be the perfect place to drop off Lester to recover. Uh, Spock points out that this colony has limited medical facilities and there's actually a starbase on the way to their next destination. But it's slightly further away or something. Yeah. Kirk claims the starbase is too far away and the colony is the best option. Spock points out that if they sped up, they could still get there in time, but... Kirk vetoes that for no particular reason. Just to be obnoxious, I guess. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> the comm officer, who is not Uhura, she doesn't get to be in the final episode. Damn it. Uhura, where are you? Come back to us. Off singing somewhere, having a much better time than this, probably. Oh, okay. That works then. The comm officer asks if she should update Starfleet on their plan changes... Uh, Kirk gets angry and yells about how there's no need to update anyone because this isn't a change of plan. And Spock points out that it totally is a change of plan and they need to update Starfleet, for which she then immediately blames Spock for not doing. So, uh, Captain, you seem to be, um, I don't know, not good at your job anymore. What's, what's going on? You don't seem to understand that we follow regulations around here generally. Yeah. Basically, though the problem with this, the main problem that we get with this, is Kirk was never good at his job. Yep. <laughs> so I, I guess this is really saying something to be sort of, uh, you know, pushing this sort of uh, level of uh, not following the rules, I guess. Yep. Later in Kirk's quarters, McCoy confronts her about being removed from Lester's case. Kirk accuses him of having his pride hurt, but McCoy points out that Coleman was removed from Starfleet Medical, according to the Surgeon General's office, due to gross incompetence. Oh, he is incompetent. Okay, so I was right earlier. Yeah, completely incompetent. <laughs> Wait, why was he even allowed to, like, be the doctor on an expedition like this? This seems like someone you don't want to be anywhere near like anybody. Who knows? 
Kirk shuts down this argument for no reason, but McCoy orders him to submit to medical investigation because of his strange behavior. Perhaps McCoy will uh, catch on to what's going on here. Mm. Take that, Zaro Kirk. In sickbay, Lester wakes up, is confused why he's there because all vitals are normal, then sees his body and freaks out a little bit. Kind of understandably. Like, hmm, this isn't me. What the hell is going on? He yells for McCoy, but Coleman shows up instead and tells Lester that he is really Dr. Lester and only thinks that he is Kirk because he's crazy. So uh, I think this is what we call gaslighting? Yep. It is, in fact. Mm -hmm. Then Coleman calls in Chapel to get a sedative and strap Lester down on the bed because, again, he's crazy. Well, I guess at the very least the straps are kind of ridiculously easy to get through, uh, escape from, so I guess that's something to be happy about here. Eh? Eh. Later on, Chapel returns. This time she and Lester are alone. Lester remains calm, apologizes for acting crazy, and tries to get a meeting with Spock finds out that the ship has been rerouted to drop him off on a unknown backwater colony planet, and Chapel gives him a drink of something, which Lester drinks a little of, asks to be left alone to finish it, goes, oh, don't worry, I'll be good. Then as soon as Chapel leaves, immediately dumps out the drink, breaks the glass, and starts using it to cut off his restraints. Resourceful, uh, but uh, I'm a little confused why they still have you know, like glass glasses in the future. I don't know. Yeah, they always did, though. Anyway. <laughs> in the exam area of sickbay, Spock and McCoy discuss Kirk's odd behavior and hope that the test will reveal something. Kirk arrives to the examination just as Lester comes running down the hall yelling for Spock and McCoy. He runs into sickbay and is immediately knocked out by Kirk, who claims Lester could have been dangerous, and orders him to be put in the brig and with no one allowed to talk to him. So that looks very suspicious. Spock immediately goes to talk to him. Like, um, yeah, I'm just going to kind of ignore that bullshit order here um guys let me in <laughs> the guard is dubious but lets him in because you know second in command mm -hmm. but insists on being let into the room and at the same time in sickbay kirk is being given the robian dioptical examination dermal optical something or other it's supposed to measure kirk's basic emotional structure and check it with the baseline reading they took when he joined starfleet so uh this is sort of a, a thing that kind of pops up in various forms in later star trek as well uh, where, you know, I recall a specific episode of the Next Generation where they basically do a similar sort of test with Theta to basically determine if this his brain got taken over as well. Apparently, it's a shit test. Yep. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, it seems everything's okay. I'm sorry about that. Um, hmm. Spock starts to interrogate Lester. He tells Spock about past episodes, but, you know, anyone could have watched this show, so that's not very convincing. Ask about the animated series. Come on. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. Well, I, th I thought some of the episodes of the animated series were, like, star dated before this one, but anyway. I'm really not sure. That'll be interesting <laughs> to see. Lester knows that he can't prove anything by talking, so suggest a mind meld, since Spock knows Kirk better than anyone in the universe. Well, this actually kind of makes sense. All right, let's uh, get your mind melded, and uh, we'll see how things roll then. Hey, let me tell you about my best friend. Spock does the mind meld, is convinced that this is, in fact, his old friend Kirk trapped in Lester's body. Uh, Spock wants to take Lester to Dr. McCoy to gather more evidence, but this the guard will not allow, because no one's allowed to leave. Well, um, Spock, uh, you could, uh, you know, come back later and uh, basically replace the guards and, you know, like, and okay, new guards, uh, we're going to take take this prisoner here over here now. That'd be clever. That would be. Spock says yes, of course, goes in for a neck pinch, but this guard is smarter, sees that he's doing this, blocks the first attempt, starts yelling to alert the other guards, and then Spock gets him with the other hand. So uh, I guess this guard was like genre savvy, but, you know, yeah. Counterproductive sort of way. <laughs> Spock and Lester leave and walk right into Kirk and a bunch of guards. Spock surrenders immediately, and Kirk calls for a court-martial to try Spock for mutiny. For trying to take Lester to the McCoy? What? Yep, disobeying orders. So in the conference room, we join as Scotty is interrogating Spock, trying to find any evidence bond. His mind meld that Lester is not what she appears to be, and Spock wants to bring Lester in to be questioned. But Kirk continues to refuse, calling Lester dangerously insane. But Spock does convince her to allow Lester to be brought in by mildly insulting her, I guess. 
I guess, yeah. Kirk tries to cleverly interrogate Lester. At least that's what the episode wants us to think. It's, it's, it's kind of meh. Kirk keeps asking if Lester believes himself to be Kirk. And he replies, no, I won't be tricked like that. That would be crazy. I am Kirk's soul that's been transferred to another body using alien technology. So whatever makes Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk has been transferred into the body of Lester and vice versa. I don't believe I'm actually Captain Kirk. That would be crazy. So... Are you the personality of Captain Kirk? These memories? Uh, what? Um, just the soul? Uh, in that case, is there a problem here? I'm not, not seeing it then. Kirk heavily implies that a woman overpowering a man would be impossible. Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> then has Lester explain why Lester would want to do that. Then he explains that it's because Lester hated being a woman to the point that she was willing to do terrible, terrible things to get the power and privilege afforded by having a male body. So either there's like a, you know, a trans sort of narrative going on here. Alternatively, she's just really fed up with the 60s future being really sexist. Yeah, I hope that's the we'll discuss it later because both of those yeah. are horrible. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> Kirk, there's a proper hissy fit, hitting a table, yelling, crying, acting. Yeah. Then calls a recess. Hey, recess. We can go outside and play. In the hallway, Scotty approaches McCoy to ask how he's going to vote. McCoy agrees that Kirk is off, but every test he's run shows that Kirk is everything that she does claim to be. And Starfleet will only accept concrete evidence, not any of this wishy-washy evidence of putting the ship in danger and acting erratically. Only concrete evidence. Like, um, um, a test that doesn't work? <laughs> yep. Scotty agrees that headquarters is going to have a problem with this, but they have a job to do because he's seen Kirk be mad, crazy, terrified, in pain, crazy, upset, happy, crazy. <laughs> he's never seen him be hysterical. Oh, dear. So they need to remove Kirk no matter what. That's all I got to say to this. Mm -hmm. It's just... Back in the conference room, Kirk pulls a surprise and plays the tape from the hallway that incriminates McCoy and Scotty of conspiring against the captain. And she sentences them and Spock to the death penalty, which shocks everyone, because apparently the death penalty is only allowed under one very specific circumstance called General Order 4, which we don't need to know, but has not been violated. <laughs> so... Uh there was a general order uh, you know, for reference before, wasn't there? I can't. I forgot to look it up if it was in the cage or not, because I know they said that going to that planet was like the only death penalty left. Yeah, uh, you know, the uh, Starfleet expressly forbids the death penalty, uh, only one exception, uh, and it is such uh, mutiny was not considered a violation of the. Yeah, the only thing I could find about General Order 4 was a reference to this episode specifically. And I do remember that earlier they said going to the planet with the mind creatures was the only death penalty left. So I guess it must be that. Yeah, I guess so. It's sort of by default here. So for some reason, Chekhov decided to say, but execution's not allowed except for if we go to that one planet. And I don't think we've done that. <laughs> Unless we missed something. Wait, is that why everyone's, you know, all this weird stuff's going on here, guys? The Kirk just orders them all taken to the brig. Anyway, cause just do, get get out of here, this scene, please. Just go to jail. You're not allowed anymore. On the bridge, Sulu and Chekhov agree that no one will allow an execution, and there's no way that this is the captain, and everything's going weird. So, um... What are we going to do about it? Kirk arrives, orders them to plot an orbit for the colony to drop off Lester. Both Sulu and Chekhov refuse to move, and Kirk starts yelling at them about disobedience and everyone's against them, blah, 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 blah. Then suddenly, Kirk doubles over in pain and drops backward. In the brig, Lester does the same, and we see the weird woo of faces happen again. Wait, have they switched back finally? Is everything going to get unraveled now? So in the brig, Lester says that just for a moment he was back on the bridge, suggesting that the transfer may in fact be breakable. In the medical lab, Kirk communes with Coleman on this transfer, and he believes the only way to prevent the transfer from going back is to kill Lester, but Kirk can't. She's too weak or something, and convinces Coleman to prepare a 
poison that they'll give Lester under the guise of a sedation. So that thing that he was trying to get Colbin to do earlier. Yep. Okay. But now it's like, if we get caught, you'll be called a murderer. So let's go murder. Only way. <sighs> he killed 13 people and now you have to kill another one. So guess this is what we're doing now. In the brig, they announce that they're going to move all the prisoners to separate cells, which of course starts a fight. Uh, Lester begins struggling to not be poisoned by Coleman, and Kirk is just on the side yelling, Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Kill! 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 Death! Before they both convulse again and the transfer resets, Kirk is back to being Kirk, Lester's back to being Lester, and she starts crying. Oh, I just wanted to kill him. This is dead. Should be dead. So uh, this breakup they had is apparently very, very bad. Yeah. Coleman hugs her and says, Now you're back to how I love you. Wait a moment. There's another love plot here? Apparently. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kirk asks if anything can be done. Coleman says he's going to take care of her. And McCoy leads them away. Kirk laments that her life could have been as rich as any woman's, if only. If only. Yeah. Bleh. This is the last line of the entire series. Her life could have been as good as any woman. If only. If only we weren't in the 60s Star Trek. Well, apparently, if only she'd just... Accept her lot in life and stop trying to improve things. Stop trying to improve your lot in life, kids. Yeah, the, the Roddenberry future was a lot less uh, about self-improvement and things like that back then, apparently. Especially for ladies. So, that sucked. This is kind of the first episode of this series that made me angry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess there was a few bits here and there, especially like the real racist stuff. I'm like, ah, really, guys? But uh, this one, it's just so direct on on the nose as far as being just awful as, as far as sexism goes. It's just like, did anyone think maybe let's not do this? Yeah, let's well, see. Every episode of this show has been sexist to one degree or another. It always objectifies the women on the show. It treats them badly. It reinforces negative gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. To one degree or another, many of the episodes have been misogynist. This episode is just explicitly misogynist in its overall message. Yes. Like, the, the inherent message that we are meant to take from this is that women cannot function in society in the same way that men can, that trying is going to cause them pain, and it is going to hurt and destroy the men around them. Which is complete bullshit. Uh, and uh, is not a very good message even, you know, from any sort of way you can kind of look at it. Uh, the And so the best, most charitable interpretation I can get here of this, what, what, we, what we watch for this, is that, hey, the 60s kind of suck as far as uh, gender roles here, and that's as far as I can get with that argument. Yep. And, yeah, and then instead of saying, let's maybe question them or try to, you know, offer up a solution or anything else it's like no let's just uh, keep on with the status quo and um well ladies be crazy so uh you have to go over here and uh be taken care of by this doctor man person who's incompetent apparently well because he loves her so there are so many lines in this there's a there's a bit where they say being a woman without a man is too painful to live right before she like switches bodies or maybe right after like, she can't live as a woman without a man, so she has to, like, become the man. There's, um, Kirk says that it was impossible for them to be together because she hated her own womanhood too much for any man to be with her. So what are you trying to say, Kirk? That she didn't accept that being a woman means these certain restrictions that you just have to accept, and you shouldn't try to change them or make things better for yourself in any way. I think it might be important to point out that this was kind of in the middle of the uh, the second wave of feminism movements, which was basically saying all of that is all, you know, that sort of way of thinking is kind of bogus, so let's, like, change things. Yeah. See, the thing that gets me a lot with this this kind of thing on this show, while I accept, even though I come from a very different era of media representation where this seems ridiculously low like this was one of the first times that a lot of like they just had women and you know african americans and asian americans just 
on the ship without comment like it was normal. Mm -hmm. And I understand that that was just a massive leap forward as far as representation goes. But the writers of the show, especially Roddenberry, while as far as I can tell, slightly better on the race stuff than some of his contemporaries, but still not good, as we've seen in some of these episodes, was so blatantly misogynist that even though this idea that women are just inferior to men blanket and need men around and can't be allowed to act as equals to men was the accepted norm not only at the time, but for literal thousands of years of history up to this point, he still decided that he needed to write an entire hour-long television story about how it was true, and if we tried to do anything about it, it would go wrong. So in other words, don't reform society, everyone. Everything's okay, and we're just going to continue suffering. Yeah, screw that noise. <laughs> so I was... uh. I don't know. I was really, I've spent about two weeks because I took some time on this episode and I spent about two weeks trying to think about what in the world to actually say about what's going on here. And I can't come up with anything because this episode just makes me so upset. And we can go over how blatantly misogynist it is and we'll probably make some more points on that. And the only thing I could think of was like going through a possible history of misogyny, which is just too big of a topic to cover and isn't going to get us anywhere because... As far as I can tell, I did find some references and just out of interest that uh, misogyny as we know it today, at least according to um, an author named Jack Holland who wrote Misogyny, the World's Oldest Prejudice, manifested itself sometime in the 8th century BC around the time of uh, ancient Greece, like Athens and the uh, Judea areas. So that seems to be where this popped up from. But yeah, sometime in there, sometime between hunter-gatherer, early agrarian societies and Athens, misogyny happened. And that's about as much as we know. And ever since then, we've had basically the ancient Greek-Athenian uh, misogyny structure that this episode's reinforcing. And like we can go through more of that, but I don't know how useful it is, and I don't know how useful it is to keep pointing out the misogyny in these things because it's just here and it's so pervasive like the entire episode is misogynist the entire thing you're supposed to take away from this episode is that misogyny is good and trying to break away from misogyny in any way is going to cause pain not only to yourself but to others and the very fact that you would want to do so labels you as insane so let's let's be insane then how about that you flip this all this whole thing on its, on its head and say let's instead of talking about misogyny and how awful this is let's talk about feminism what's that about well yeah, the idea in this era as i understand it because i'm not very versed in all of the feminist waves was a uh, well after world war ii you had a lot of women in the workforce because all the men were in war and then the men came back and they said get out the men need jobs and people didn't take particularly kindly to that idea it's like wait but I was good at my job. I was making money off my job. I was able to support myself at my job. And you're saying I just can't have my job anymore? What? <laughs> but you still had a lot of the stuff that they put in this episode. And while it went down a little bit during this era, I think it's worth pointing out, the since they reference it specifically, the hysterical idea stems from an old Freudian idea, which actually wasn't super bad in Freud's time. It was basically just his name for explaining uh, abusive trauma symptoms that he was seeing in a lot of his female patients. And he named it hysteria. And it had a pretty common symptom symptomology. Generally probably leaving you uh, in, a, in a very sort of panicked state of mind. Uh, at some point, which I wasn't able to find any hard information of, but at some point between there and what we get to, especially even now... Hysteria just became sort of a blanket term for anything a woman did that you didn't like. Yeah, sort of became a, a, a you know, um, not a slur, but uh, the other sort of uh, word that works out for that sort of thing. It's just a general dismissal. Yes, dismissal, there we go. And the insidious thing that we have here is this idea that uh, Foucault talked about a lot, which is basically once a society can define who is crazy 
and that being crazy lets you be excluded from the rights and privileges of that society, the society has an incentive to label anyone who it does not want to fit into the society as crazy. And that counts for basically all women, but mostly women who are trying to break away from the very small area of society they're supposed to live in. They're supposed to be like unseen, happy housewives, etc., etc. Um, something that I was reading in Misogyny, the World's Oldest Prejudice, was even as far back as Athens, there was a split. You had this split in society between the good women and the bad women, and the good women just, you know, accepted where they were, didn't cause much fuss, did everything they were told, were still treated horribly but didn't cause too many problems for the men. And then you had the bad women who tried to do literally anything else, but because you could compare them, you could take the bad women and punish them and do worse things to them and uphold the good women as your stereotype that you want everyone to achieve. And this episode is entirely, here is a bad woman. Mm -hmm. And she's a bad woman because she hates being a woman, which also kind of goes back to something we were talking about a couple episodes ago, where they referenced that they were able to fix racism by being okay with yourself. Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that, guys. <laughs> so the explicit message of this episode is be okay with your place in society and trying and being unhappy with your place in society is going to make you go crazy with jealous rage and start hurting people, including yourself, because she hurt herself most of all. We also have this weird running through line of her inability to want to kill people is seen as a negative because she's weak and being a man and being strong means you are capable of murdering anyone you like. But simultaneously, Coleman refusing to kill people is a, upheld as somewhat virtuous. He's holding on to a little bit of his male virtue by refusing to just go off and randomly kill people for her. So you simultaneously have the man refusing to kill is good and noble, but the woman being unable to kill is weak and pitiable. Yeah, it's kind of a double standard going on here. Well, you have this, this has been going around a lot, and I've seen it, I apologize, I know I'm like going on and on and monopolizing the conversation, I'm just very upset by this episode. <laughs> Don't worry, I got some stuff about uh, the, the waves of feminism before after the words. Okay, but like, we, <laughs> there's this thing that I, that I know everyone's seen going around, especially if you're on Tumblr or Twitter, and it's just idea of the fascist ideas about their supposed opposition that the enemies of fascism are always too weak to be regarded as humans but also so strong that they are an imminent threat yep. and this is what you get in these misogynist messages women are inherently weaker than men men could overpower them at any time they are mentally weak they're not worth being regarded they are some they're like basically a burden that you need to take care of and keep around because you're supposed to care about them as like a pet. But they're also simultaneously incredibly dangerous and giving a woman education or freedom or any of the things that we today say we value in society makes them too dangerous and they become an imminent threat. So you both are justifying your keeping them confined in this very limited societal space as taking care of them because they're too stupid to do it themselves, which also see uh, explanations of racism and slavery. You're taking care of people who are lack the ability to do it without you helping them. But also, they are dangerous, so you have to forcibly keep them contained so that they don't get out and take over and issue in the apocalypse. It's, it's almost like um, methods of control and bigotry are have general through lines that all kind of are parallel. Yeah, it's very, very similar. And in fact, one of the lines that I found in another article that I um, forgot to write down, unfortunately, is the more time a society spends oppressing a group, the more obsessed they become with the oppressed group. So you have to spend so much of your societal time and energy oppressing a group that you become fascinated with them and you spend so much time thinking about them and how to oppress them that it basically becomes an obsession. It's a societal obsession 
on keeping these people contained because the more time and energy you have to spend on it, the more time and energy you have to spend thinking about it, which then leads you to spending more time and energy on it and becomes this sort of vicious cycle where you're spending a massive amount of time, energy, and resources trying to keep this group contained for supposedly the good of your society. So uh, anyone who's really into like utility calculations, this is where you're supposed to go open and be like, wait a moment, this seems like a like a massive waste of time and effort. Yeah, I mean, it kind of broadly, not to draw a direct parallel, but it kind of broadly reminds me of the kind of, um, I forget what you call it, the hostile architecture movement. Where you put all the little, uh, you know, little things everywhere so the, the homeless can't sleep on like, you know, a, a bench or, a, you know, a, like a raised area or something like that. Yeah, and the amount of time, energy, resources, and money you spend overhauling a city's architecture to make it inhospitable to the homeless population, you could have housed a bunch of people. Yes, perhaps even all of them, or more than all of them. But nope, we gotta you know be cruel to people first, and we you know we cannot dare be kind or you know allow them to have a, a you know a means to you know, come into the rest of society again because. They are, I guess, being declared inherently awful, and thus we need to torment and supposed to help. Yeah, why would you possibly help people? Because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> I'm too upset. I took like I took some time this last couple weeks and realized how like I'm coming into all these episodes upset and angry and salty, and I should stop doing that. And then I watched this and was like, oh no, <laughs> well, that, that's not going to help. Oh. <laughs> so you should talk about feminism for a while. So. So there should be, we should really sort of differentiate two things first, uh, that there is feminism as in the movements of feminism, uh, which is, you know, very sort of periods of, you know, of, uh, political action, things like that, uh, versus sort of uh, feminist theory. And these are actually interrelated, but they are not necessarily the same thing, you know, because, you know, when there's not a political movement sort of actually going on, there's still people thinking about feminist theory. Even if they're, you know, there's not people in the streets protesting stuff. It's a worthwhile to point out that most of the things we talk about, in fact, especially when you're getting into philosophical concepts, but even something that seems as actionable as feminism where you see protests, there is a major difference between what you would call the academic and the practical. So, yeah, a lot of the, like, theories that you hit, especially anything, like, so when someone anti-feminist comes out with something that sounds ridiculous like all feminists think that men are inherently evil because you're bottom weighted or something that's usually like a weird allegory that someone came up with in an academic paper and not something that's meant to be taken as literal fact kind of guess you know that sort of touches upon you know the, the fact that a lot of folks are just kind of bad at understanding academic papers and stuff mm -hmm. uh and and so you could sort of take a the, the jargon used in or or analogies used or whatever uh that is very context heavy as far as interpretation of it and sort of pull it out and kind of twist it however you like and you come up with this ridiculous nonsense and then everyone who obviously has not read the original uh, research they're referencing is like oh my god this is awful <gasps> gasp and stuff so we have to uh we have to fight this nonsense and and yeah, it just makes everything kind of awful for a while. But uh, so, yeah, there's very much the sort of academic side and the activism side. And the activism side is where, you know, generally where all the, the, the wave stuff sort of is very attached. And, yeah, the uh, academic side sort of follows along uh, in, in this either, you know, you know, start, you know kicking off stuff, uh, thinking about certain subjects before or after uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the activism stuff kind of comes on in response and, you know, in conjunction with, but they are not necessarily always synced up properly. Um, so, first wave feminism, Gapwin, what do you think that's about? Oh, I haven't done a lot of research, but when do we start counting the waves? Does that start at suffrage, or do we count that as a different thing? Ah, suffrage is the, the, basically the first wave, uh, where it's like, okay, ladies, we don't got much uh, power here, uh, so let's go change that. And so, that was pretty much what's yeah the, the basics of, of the first wave uh as it's sort of seen now uh was you know sort of really about to sort of gain that basic political power that able to influence the society around uh, them that they were able to you know go out and actually be you know participate as opposed to just sort of being forced on the sidelines forever 
Uh, and and so, you know, you know the suffrage movement uh, had different speeds and different you know, different sort of you know, levels of success in different countries and different areas. Uh, and the, the U.S., you know, the, the, uh, was the 19th Amendment. I should have looked that up. Anyway, uh, the, the, you know, the suffrage movement uh, allowed women to participate in, you know, federal elections. Uh, some of the state level stuff had already been beating them under uh, the federal government the punch there. But uh, you're sort of like, okay, nationally, now we got this going on here. So, you know, you know everybody can vote uh, provided you're, you know, white. So anyway, the... So that you know, then the World War uh, One happened, and World War Two happened, uh, and then you got to your your stuff where it's like, wait, we actually like could have jobs. That was kind of nice, and you know, as exactly as you said before, you know, it's like, well, we're kind of being forced out of our jobs, and that kind of sucks. And well, we don't really just want to be going home to be you know your your caregivers anymore here. Maybe let's like try to change that up a bit. And so you get sort of this second wave where it's like, okay, we have technically political power in that we have the right to vote um but the, you know, the women were like okay let's go out and actually like have influence in society as opposed to just sort of this one thing it sort of expands your your influence and being able to you know as a, a, a demographic be able to say all right we are kind of going to start defining what being a woman is for ourselves and so you know that's sort of what was going on during the, you know, the 60s and 70s there uh, then you get kind of a third wave, which is more sort of a nineties thing, uh, where it's like, you know, okay. So we, we, there's a bit more openness in society. You got political power as well, but there's still this whole thing where a lot of this is really kind of focused on empowering mostly, uh, more well-off white people as usual. So let's maybe like, I don't know, have some intersectionality or something like that, uh, you know, and so it's not just going to be, you know, you know, quote the Karens of the world are going to be benefiting here. It is going to be all women. So that's, that's what sort of the third wave is about. Uh, and there's sort of suggestion that there's now a fourth wave sort of happening, uh, which is like, okay, so we've got a bit more equality there. We're still working on that. But there's a lot of this whole, you know, sexual violence stuff that we're kind of fed up with. And so maybe let's stop that. Yeah, and so... You know the I guess the most highest highest profile version of you know component of that is like the Me Too movement, but uh, you know it's definitely much more expansive than that. That there's a definite movement against sexual violence that's being uh, you know you know uh, that's rising at this point, and you know I'm really hopeful that it's uh, in the long term successful, so that we can finally get 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 past all this sort of awfulness here. It has been sort of persisting for quite some time. So that's the ways of feminism. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, even as having looked at this, I get confused by the way of things. So that's helpful. <laughs> so I guess to sort of break it down, uh, political power, basic society power, uh, uh, power for all, and uh, uh, free uh, and uh, safety. You can sort of set it up like that. You were getting that like start of second wave in like sort of slowly transitioning into the like more women-centered sort of the women's liberation stuff that was in the 70s since this episode came out in 69 was actually the only episode that was even partially shot in 69 at this point you're you're moving into the later i don't know exactly what to call it but it's kind of the middle stages of second wave and then moving into what we might think of as the kind of stereotypic, what we would stereotypically think is 70s feminism, even though a lot of that was uh, overplayed strawman propaganda. Indeed. Yeah, you know, strawman propaganda is something that uh, our present viewers are probably quite familiar with as far as, you know, fe you know feminism movements of, the mo of, the, of today, because, you know, there's plenty of that sort of going on right now in order to sort of downplay play and try to discredit the good movement against uh, sexual violence and all that. And it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's once again to try to discredit, contain, and control women in order to prevent anything from actually getting done. Which one hopes isn't going to be as successful, but I'm not going to say anything on that today because I've been too upset and depressed by this episode and some things in the world generally. Yeah, well, well we kind of live in a hellscape right now. Yeah. But I think that this is useful because even talking about the history, I get so fed up when I try to research things like I spent 
part of this week trying to research like the origins of misogyny to try to come up with something. And it's just been so baked in and rewritten into all of our history that the very idea that things weren't this way at some point in the past is considered ridiculous to think about. Even though we have many, many historical examples of societies that were not explicitly misogynist, even if there was still some amount of gender separation or even possibly gender bias, the misogyny didn't seem to be there the same way that there was like some amount of like nationalist feeling in ancient Greece and some amount of like anyone from my area of the world is better than someone from your area of the world. Racism didn't come about until sometime in the 1800s when we started defining people by those particular color groups. So the idea that it's always been this way despite having like ancient Egypt didn't seem to have this kind of misogyny. And a lot of the ancient writings in, like, the legend of Gilgamesh and, you know, Babylon, that sort of area, didn't seem to have this kind of misogyny. And the um, nomadic Celts in northern Europe and Britain were probably matriarchal. But we have rewritten all of our history through this very white male sort of Enlightenment-era lens that makes it almost impossible to even talk about how this is not just a biological norm that always happens. Once again, one of those things that's, no, it's really, we're, we're sort of forcing it to be in there via our society. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense. Like, several, several peoples throughout history, um, like, I immediately think of different Native American populations but like a lot of places throughout history didn't even have um didn't even have this this gender separation that we have now several places had as many as five or six genders so the idea that you were going to have a divided society based on gender lines as a norm is just ridiculous when even the concept of two genders specifically is something that is fairly new and Western. Yeah, it's like, what do you, what do you mean cookie cutter? What, have, have you seen our friends over here? They're very, 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 uh, you know, you know, uh, different. They express their, you know, their gender in various different sort of ways here. Mm -hmm. So what are you white people doing here? I think there's one more thing that I want to bring up very briefly, because we, you did sort of mention it at one point in the episode. And while I didn't necessarily find anyone reading it this way, I feel like there could be a sort of trans reading of this episode. And I do not feel particularly qualified to comment on it because I am Same. a cis straight white dude. But from what I know and have learned, any trans reading of this material, it feels very much like the way you would b very badly treat this idea kind of in the 90s. It's sort of a, like, I don't think that they had any of this in there because I don't think that most people in the 60s would even acknowledge that trans people existed. But this weird thing they have of how Lester has an animosity towards being a woman that makes her want to be a man sounds eerily similar to a lot of the kind of anti-trans ideas that people have used that you just hate being male or female and so want to be the other out of some hatred or disgust for who you are as a person. And while I can't as I've said, directly speak to any of those experiences. Uh, everything that I've read or heard people comment on uh, that sounds like such a blatant misreading of the situation and one that is actively kind of used to straw man this idea that trans people are just fueled out of some sort of anger or hatred of who they are and that that's more the problem, that you can like convince someone they don't want to be a woman and that they're going to hate it, and it's sort of this weird, I don't know, kind of like they've represented in this episode, a hatred of being a woman because of the inherent, like, limitations of it or something like that. It's kind of the, the trapped-in-the-wrong-body metaphor that I know at one point was used to kind of explain 
the trans idea but has since like fallen out of favor as being woefully inaccurate it also kind of reminds me of sort of the way, uh, chain of, of thinking sort of once again through that sort of uh, 90s uh, sort of uh, vibe there that okay you're you're basing you know your 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 transness out of hatred and so that means you're going to be angry and because you're angry you're dangerous and that's kind of bullshit as well well it's not that different from what we were talking about with the other oppressed groups idea that I've, I've heard this before. Once you start oppressing someone, you have to keep oppressing them because now they're angry. And if you ever stop oppressing them, they're going to seek revenge upon you. And now you're justified in your oppression. Or you could, you know, not oppress them and you could figure out like how to live together. No, they're going to come, come back and kill you in your sleep or something. So I understand it. Yeah, that's, that's a whole bit of nonsense that, yeah, it's assumes malice when people just want to freaking live their lives, people. Well, the assumption of malice is a part of the justification. Because you always have to justify oppression, which is an interesting one, which means that everyone always knows it's wrong. Yep. Surprise! (laughs) You wouldn't have to justify it if it was just the way the world worked and no one ever questioned it. One of those things, like, you think about it for even five minutes and you're like, wait, this kind of sucks. It's like, oh... We have to have an explanation, a, a reason we're being awful all the time. Otherwise, well, the system will fall apart and we can't have that. It's also not the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing where you need to look at it and say, like, I know that probably not a lot of people who listen to this show, because, you know, there's only 14 of them and they tend to agree with us on most things, but they <laughs> there's a defense of things in this this sort of era of, like, it's just a product of its time. And I've heard that argument for a lot of things, but just saying that something this blatantly misogynist is just a product of its time, and lots of people thought like that, ignores all of the people who thought this was wrong, Yep. which is a lot of people. I've even heard this as like, the, the most pertinent example that I can easily think of is people defending like slave-owning Americans from the you know 1700s saying well that's just how everyone thought at the time it's like well the people who were enslaved didn't think like that indeed they're like this kind of sucks i wish i wasn't enslaved come on you know you're just kind of ignoring their voices entirely because you know they're not the ones that were you know in charge of this yeah. every it's easy to say everyone thought like that when you ignore the people who didn't Yep. So let's maybe like stop ignoring people that, you know, are contrary to uh, sort of the norm of the time and be like, you know, these people over here, they had what was going on right. And uh, like they wanted to reject this nonsense. And so let's like, I don't know, pay more attention to folks like, like that. And maybe we can learn how to pay attention to folks like that in our current context. People that are going, you know, maybe the world could be a better place. You know, let's support their voices. All right, I'm having trouble thinking of anything else, so maybe we should move on to something that's supposedly lighter. Let's see where we go now. It's time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Hey everybody, welcome to the Game Show Portion Show. I hope you're having a good night, or evening, or morning. Uh, this show goes out in the morning, so probably morning, depending on what time zones you're in. Anywho, anywho, anywho. We got several awards to hand out this week. Uh, I think I might have to tackle on a, a, a final one, get one, just uh, sorry to surprise you with there. But uh, our first prize is the uh, What Fourth Amendment Prize, which goes to Scotty McCoy for having their private conversation being remotely recorded without their consent and it being somehow admissible in court or court-martial court or whatever. What do they win, Gepwin? Scotty and McCoy win the Cone of Silence! It's the only way to ensure private conversations in this era, or so I have been led to understand by Get Smart. Oh, yes. Get Smart is amazing. I highly recommend everyone to check that out sometime if you have the chance. Our second uh, prize is the Destruction of the Self Prize, which goes to Lester for trying to murder her old body, and by extension, Kirk. Um, what does uh, Lester win in this case, or Kirk, Lester, Kirk, Lester, Kirk? Uh, whatever one it is now. We need to get a philosopher on this one, because I'm not sure if this counts as suicide. Hmm. Oh, counting the continuity of the body or the self? 
So, is it the structure of the body or the self? I don't know. I'm still going to keep the, the name of the title for the, the prize, though, because uh, we, we would have to remake the tro trophy otherwise. Our third prize is the Medical Malpractice Award, which goes to Dr. Coleman and Nurse Chapel for being bad caretakers of their parent, patient and just, you know, knocking her out all the time, or uh, him out, or, yeah, yeah. Well, where do they win, Gepwin? They win promotions and medical degrees, and Coleman probably gets reinstated, because as I understand it, this is, like, great doctoring for the time. The woman's complaining, so just knock her out. I don't know. Seems still kind of like a dick move, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> Uh, our fourth prize is the Grand Theft Me Prize, which goes to Kirk for uh, getting his old body stolen there. Uh, what does he win, Gepwin? Kirk wins a four-star police rating. I'm trying to remember how many you would get for stealing a body. A car's like one. I haven't played those games in a long time. The last good one was San Andreas and Fight Me. <laughs> Just follow the damn train, CJ. Our uh, final award tier, uh, the surprise one for Gepwin here, is the What Were They Thinking prize, which goes to uh, Gene Roddenberry and Singer, for, uh, or Arthur H. Singer, for uh, basically this script of this whole episode. What were they thinking, Gepwin? I mean, what do they win? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would like them to win some sort of research assistant. They obviously didn't ask anyone on this show. They had diversity in the cast, and that's great. I think this show really, really, really proves the value of diversity in the writing room. Maybe someone could have raised their hand and go, you know, this whole concept here kind of sucks, and even if you want to run with it, maybe here are 400,000 changes you can make in the script to make it less awful. That's all I got, Gepwin. Take it away. Oh, thank you, Isix, and thank you all of our contestants for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! <laughs> so, that was an episode of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Tech. Oof. Also, you were right. It was the 19th Amendment. I looked it up. Hey, I'm I, I getting my amendments correct today. 19th Amendment from the from 1920, so only 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Rights of citizens of the U.S. to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any other state on account of sex. Hooray! So have as much sex as you want. Sweet, and we can still vote. Apparently, yeah. So uh, that, you heard it, everybody. Get to it. <laughs> okay, so n this is the end of... Star Trek the original series, which means we have no more episodes left. Holy smokes, what does that mean, Gapwin? Well, it means that next week we're going to be doing something slightly different, because this is the first time we've actually completed a thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to do retrospective episode? I don't know what to call it. We're going to go do an episode about the original series, generally. Yeah, yes. So we've all we've seen it now, we've, we've watched every episode, we've talked about uh, some of them in incredible length. Others we just kind of want to forget. So how does this affect us? How do what do we think about this? Uh, not well. It doesn't affect me well at all. In fact, it seems to make Gepwin just kind of irate. <laughs> yes, a lot of the time. Yes. So next week we're going to just do a sit down discussion episode. We'll we'll work out some of the format in a bit here, but we're just going to discuss the series as a whole, an entire entity. And, uh... You know, this is your, uh, your chance to uh, sort of get our our general vibe uh, as opposed to our episode by episode stuff, and uh, maybe maybe remember some episodes that we talked about ages ago fondly. Yeah, and this will have been this this episode will have come out by then. I'm gonna reach out on the socials and see if anyone has any questions they want us to cover specifically. Well, that's a good point. Neither of us are super popular on the socials, so I don't know how much we'll get. But I'm gonna try to open up the floor to some fan questions about the series yes. or discussion points so uh you should have seen us asking about this already on the social medias hopefully yeah unless we forgot <laughs> unless we forgot but that's going to do it um this was the final episode of star trek it went out with a oh god <laughs> and then done <laughs> so thank you very much and next week we will just talk about all of original series three whole seasons of the thing mm -hmm. so join us here next week for that on watchers of tomorrow next time on watchers of tomorrow the original series blues mm -hmm.
have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principal, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.